I'm looking forward to communion in a few moments. The, the entire crucifixion was a horrific, gruesome occurrence. It's also appalling that it's hard to say one part was worse than another. And yet as great as his personal suffering was, it must have been equally difficult for Jesus to know his mother was there, having to watch everything that was transpiring on that fateful day. It led to the third of his seven words of love. These were words direct, directed at his mother and John the Apostle. They were caring words. They were loving words. They were selfless words. And they're found in John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. It had already been a, a long day. The trial, the agonizing debate over what to do with Jesus. Finally, the, the sentencing and the long journey to the place where the crucifixion would, would happen. It was an excruciatingly slow journey. The body of Jesus was battered by torture and weakened by blood loss. All the while, the mother of Jesus is watching in agony. She winces with the lash of every scourger's whip. She, she suffers with every step along the road to Calvary. She covers her eyes as the nails are driven into her son's precious hands. She weeps and like every good mom, longs to have the ability to step in and take her son's place. How ironic that in reality, Jesus was there taking her place as well as ours. The one who knew no sin was becoming sin for us. And when they lifted up the cross, as the life drained from his body, he looked at his mother one more time. And while it could have been all about him, once again he spoke amazing Words of love. Selfless words. John 19 records it this way. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the amazing words of love that you spoke from the cross. These words are so selfless. It's almost mind-boggling. You loved your mother. You loved us so. We're humbled by it all. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through this part of the crucifixion story, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to each heart individually, whatever it is that you have for them today. Lord, I pray that you would impart them, impart it to them. In the name of Jesus. Who is there? Verse 25 of that same chapter says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, 
and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was there. Isn't that interesting? She was the woman who loved much because she was forgiven much. Many have identified her as a prostitute before she came to Jesus, but there's really no historical evidence to support that claim. We do know that Jesus cast out seven demons from her. How grateful she must have been and and how quickly and completely she fell in line to follow Jesus. Mary Magdalene is not only present at the foot of the cross, but also at the tomb. And when that great resurrection morning occurs, she was the first to arrive and proclaim to the disciples that Jesus had risen from the dead. Her joy was coming. But on this day, her grief was overwhelming as she stood vigil by Golgotha. John was there. John was one of the inner circle of disciples. He, along with Peter and James, were the three closest to Jesus. He's pictured next to Jesus at the Last Supper, even reclining on his chest, according to John 13, 23. It always caught my eye, and I've always found it interesting that in John's writing, he refers to himself with these words four times, the disciple Jesus loved. So again, let me put that in perspective. It's John's own writings, and he refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. To us, this seems odd that that John would refer to himself this way. It seems conceited and narcissistic and self-absorbed, but I believe that John had gained an understanding that empowered him to be all that God called him to be. While it sounds egotistical, it was simply the weighty realization that we sing about as children. Jesus loves me. This I know. John was an effective minister of the gospel, able to love others and equipped to touch lives because he grasped the concept that many of us struggle with. God loves me. It's a simple yet profound truth that unlocks the potential deep within you. The perfect love of your heavenly Father casts out all fear, refutes all the lies of the enemy, defeats insecurity, drives out demons, and proclaims the truth of who we are in Christ. Apart from the realization, church, that Jesus loves you, you cannot step out in faith. Apart from the security and the assurance found in the unconditional love of Christ, You will not risk it all to serve Him, and you will accomplish precious little that impacts eternity. But with the revelation that Jesus loves you, our dormant spirit comes to life, and power begins to well up inside of us. Suddenly, hope springs eternal, and all things become possible. Our giftings and our callings begin to surface For the glory of God, our outlook on life is transformed as we, like John, are changed.
by the love of Jesus. It's the truth that sets you free. And the truth of the matter is this. You are the disciple Jesus loves. And Mary was at the cross. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary's husband, Joseph, was was dead probably for some time now. Her other children were not convinced of the Messiahship of Jesus and wouldn't be until after the resurrection. So Jesus was concerned about the welfare and the well-being of his mother. Jesus, think about this, Jesus trusted John to care for his mother more than anyone else. Funny how brothers and sisters in Christ are often closer to us than even our own blood relatives. Mary was the mother of Jesus. She was not the mother of God. Jesus is a member of the Godhead, the Holy Trinity. He did not come into existence 2,000 years ago. He always was. God has no beginning, and therefore he has no mother. Mother of God is a contradictory term. Mary gave birth to the incarnation of Jesus. You remember at the Annunciation, Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I have not known a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of you shall be called the Son of God. Jesus would be born of a woman and begotten of God. He was fully man and fully God. Which explains... Why Jesus was there. The cross, you see, is a place of justice. We don't like to see it that way, but that's exactly what it was. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 says, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus wasn't sinful flesh, but He was in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. It's a biblical principle. That the soul that sins shall die. It was true with Adam and Eve. It was true with Cain. It was true with the nation of Israel. And it's true with us. We are sinners. All have sinned, the Bible says. You know it. And I know it. God as the righteous judge, then, must punish sin. If He doesn't, He makes Himself a liar. If he doesn't punish sin, he would be unjust. He would be an immoral judge. A good judge cannot dismiss sin. If someone injured your relative or burned your house down, you would expect the judge to hold the perpetrator accountable. A good judge would have them make restitution, serve their time, and 
pay their debt to society. The righteousness of the law must be carried out in order for justice to be done. We serve not only a God of love, but a God of justice. Love and justice are the two banks of the river. Without either one, you end up with a swamp. You cannot have one without the other. Justice without love is reckless and abusive. Love without justice is weak and enabling. Our sin was in the books. We were guilty. And truth be told, that could have been the end of it. God could have blotted us out of existence or banished us into everlasting punishment. He would have been justified in so doing. But instead, He sent Jesus to become one of us. Jesus was begotten of the Father. Therefore, He did not have a sinful nature like you and me. Let me say that again. Jesus was begotten of the Heavenly Father, of the Holy Ghost. So He did not have a sinful nature like you and me. The Bible teaches in four different passages that the sins of the Father are passed on to the third and to the fourth generation. Listen, your father had a sinful nature. My father had a sinful nature. And that sinful nature was passed on to you and to me. But the Father of Jesus did not have a sinful nature to pass on. Beyond that, Jesus lived a sinless life. The absence of a sinful nature coupled with His sinless life qualifies Him to die in our stead. He had the collateral to pay our penalty. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also has once suffered for sins the just for the unjust that He might bring us to God. If you were found guilty and being sentenced in a court of law, I could offer to pay your fine for you. But if I don't have the money, if I don't have the collateral, then my offer is pointless. If Jesus was sinful, then He could not pay our penalty. He would already be sinful. He would have His own penalty to pay. It's His sinlessness that qualified Him to take our place. He has made Him to be sin for us, 2 Corinthians says, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. It was a total selfless act. And in the midst of it, we find the selfless words of Jesus. Hearts were breaking there at the cross. Mary was watching her son suffer unspeakable pain. No mother should have to witness such an atrocity. He had been on earth for 33 years. We know Mary's husband Joseph was alive when Jesus was 12. After that, we have no record of him. He may have, he may have died when Jesus was a teenager. And, and Jesus, as the oldest son, would have been responsible for the care of his mother. He expresses that responsibility here. And he offers a great tribute to motherhood by selflessly caring for her in his darkest hour. Motherhood 
is, after all, the most noble of all professions, the most difficult of all tasks, and the most significant of all callings. I believe the closest thing we have on planet Earth to the love of God is the love of a mother. We often say the love for our spouse is unconditional, but that's simply not so, nor should it be. But the love of a mom is very different. A child can be the most despicable person who ever lived and fail in horrific ways again and again, but mom will still love him. The entire world may hate him and the record may show that they're justified, but mom will stand beside her wayward son as judgment falls. Apparently there's a special bond formed during the pregnancy, delivery, and subsequent raising of a child. Mom has a substantial investment in the one she calls her son or daughter. And Jesus acknowledges that special role of mothers here in John 19. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. We don't know what happens from this point on as far as that story goes, but Scripture does say John took her into his own home. I'm inspired by the selflessness of Jesus. And so as I bring this to a close in a few moments, I want to, I want to give you three things that move you toward selfless living. Three things that move you toward selfless living. Number one, get over yourself. It's not about you. We're so self-absorbed at times, right? I think, I think life would be better if we could learn to see beyond our own little world. I've got to tell you that I visited Deb Williams in the hospital a couple times this last week after she had been diagnosed with cancer. And I was amazed at, at how upbeat she was and how she repeatedly expressed concern for how this would affect her husband John and the kids. And I think the two parts of that equation are connected. She was upbeat and concerned for her family. It wasn't all about her in her mind. And that's a lesson for all of us. It's not about you. Number two, see happiness as a life well lived. Again, we're talking about, these are, these are three things that will move you towards selfless living. Number one, get over yourself. Number two, see happiness as a life well lived. If happiness is your goal, you will become increasingly self-absorbed in your pursuit of it. But if you see happiness as a life well lived, you will discover that true happiness is a byproduct and not something you aspire to. Aspire to a life well lived. 
Number three, have the right understanding of the temporal and the eternal. We are foolish, folks. We are foolish to invest everything into this fleeting life that lasts about 25,000 days, 850 months, and we're all going to die anyway. 155,000 people die every day. 10 out of 10 die. <laughs> you don't beat those odds. Jim Elliott understood that. He was a, a missionary martyred by the Aka tribe in Ecuador. And he left us with a quote that puts it all in perspective. He is no fool, he said, who gives what he cannot keep in exchange for that which he cannot lose. Jesus hung upon the cross and selflessly thought of his mother. In that moment, as he thinks of his mother at the foot of the cross, we, we drift back to the days immediately following his birth, way back in Luke chapter 2, where Simeon blessed the infant Christ and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child, is set for the fall and the rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword, he says to Mary, a sword shall pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. That the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. It's the cross that reveals your heart, isn't it? Two thieves are crucified with Jesus and flank him. One on the right, the other on the left. Beneath the cross we have Roman soldiers, a, a woman from Magdala, curious onlookers, and John the disciple and Mary his mother. Jesus makes it impossible to be neutral. Either you're in or you're out. Either you're a repentant thief or you're a rebellious criminal. Either you are great, a grateful Mary Magdalene or you are a bitter Roman soldier. Either you weep for him or you spit upon him. You cannot be neutral. It's either about you or it's about him. It's either about this life or it's about the next life. It's either temporal or it's eternal. It's either selfish or it's selfless. In his darkest hour, Jesus cared for his mother. Even while he was on the cross, selfless words. But it wasn't just his mother he thought of that day. The old song says it well. The look of love was on his face. Thorns were on his head. The blood was on the scarlet robe stained in crimson red. Though his eyes were on the crowd that day, he looked ahead in time. For when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. And so were you. I'm going to ask the men that are serving communion to make their way to the front. It's just a great place, a great point to...
gather around the Lord's table to celebrate the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. Here at Central Assembly, it's grape juice in, in the cup, tiny cracker. If you're not a member,